HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right on time, 12 o'clock. It's Monday, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. And when Linda Palaccio says that there are thousands more shows in our archive, she's not kidding. Did you know that we have passed the 10,000 show mark? Woohoo! Thank you, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> and I have done no small part on my own to contribute to that vast number of archived shows. I think I, what did I say I had? Something like 300 and something. I, I'm pushing four because what with my almost eight years of involvement with the station, I've got, yeah. What is it, Dave? What did I, I say at the meeting? I, I thought it was 200, but you just passed a milestone. It was I just like passed just... 200 just for this show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just for What Doesn't Kill You. Oh, but I before see. that, I had Straight No Chaser. And before that, I was on the main course. Yeah, total. We'll have to get a count. I'm thinking. I mean, I'm definitely, I'm definitely uh, not quite as many as Patrick Martin's founder of the station, but uh, coming up close on his heels. Given that I did the show with him for a couple of years, um, and uh, what else did I want to tell you about that? Oh, it's our fundraising drive. Please hit the donate button, folks. Please, I'm begging you. Like, even I, um, normally I hate the whole fundraising thing, just because, like, I don't know, too many years at WBAI going. Dial in now, 212-3400, you know, whatever the number was, which I can still, if I think about it, 279-3400. That was the old number for WBAI. So that's how scarred I am by fundraising because just like um, WNYC does now, and I know BAI still does it, um, we had those big fundraising drives um, where we just constantly pitched and pitched and pitched and you didn't really hear any programming. You just heard multiple voices saying, dial in now, please call 212-3400. It was a nightmare. Anyway, um, so I'm scarred for life by that. But that being said, um, I feel like, you know, especially now that we have this new administration, which 
Who would have believed that we could have gone from bad to worse? I mean, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, bad enough that we got Donald Trump as a president. But now look who he's nominating for his cabinet positions. I know I don't need to go through this with you because I'm sure you've all read the papers and listened to the news as I have. I mean, but really, honestly and truly, I didn't think it could get any worse. And yet it has. It's a miracle and not the kind that you're hoping for. Um, But anyway, so let's quickly get into joys and sorrows. We have a great guest on today, a guy named Jonathan Gelbard, who is a um, doctor, I should say, Dr. Jonathan Gelbard. He is a PhD. He was uh, formerly at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and he's going to talk about a new certification program for um, grass-fed beef and uh, environmental stewardship. I'll let him tell you all about it. But it's a, it's a really interesting program that he's come up with. It's like really serious benchmarks, really serious monitoring. Um, it remains to be seen how that <clears throat> will all unfold. But nevertheless, it should be a very interesting program. So um, listen up. But in the meantime, what do we have to talk about today? We have joys and sorrows, of course. And here is my favorite story of this week. This is a joy. Um, In Oregon, just recently, a federal judge gave 21 Americans between the ages of 9 and 20 the green light to sue the federal government for its inaction on climate change. How do you like that, folks? District Court Judge Ann Aiken called it a landmark case. The lawsuit challenges federal decisions made on a vast set of topics, including carbon dioxide emissions from power plants and vehicles, extraction of fossil fuels on federal land, and how much to charge for its use, tax breaks and subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, funding of fossil fuel infrastructure, and construction of marine coal terminal projects. Quote, the plaintiffs assert that the defendant's decisions on these topics have substantially caused the planet to warm and the oceans to rise, said Judge Aiken. This lawsuit is is not about proving that climate change is happening or that human activity is driving it. For the purposes of this motion, those facts are undisputed. For the first time, a federal court has recognized that there is a fundamental right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life, said the attorney for the plaintiffs, attorney uh, Julia Olson. The Supreme Court for over 100 years has said that sovereign governments are public trustees, but our federal government has been denying that it's subject to the public trust doctrine and that only the states are. So this truly is a landmark thing. I'm pretty sure I covered this about a year ago, or maybe not even. It was originally a suit that was brought in the state of Washington, probably by the same group, and clearly found a more hospitable uh, and sympathetic home in Oregon. But um, stay tuned. I'm going to follow this story. I think it's a really, really interesting story um, and something that could, uh, since the federal government has abjectly failed to do anything uh, substantive in terms of saving our planet, um, you know, whether or not the judicial system can have more of an impact uh, will remain to be seen. But I think it's a really good strategy. Um, here's another I don't know whether to call this a joy or a sorrow. I suppose it's a sorrow, but it's kind of a funny story. Um, I recently read that a woman bought a dress from Zara. Do you guys know that sort of fast fashion uh, chain store. I wasn't really aware of it because I don't shop there, but um, I have certainly seen their their stores around New York, and I know other people who. Sh- and I think it's an international um, an international chain, as a matter of fact. Um, anyway, not only did she discover a dead mouse sewn into the hem of her new dress, which she wore, but um, and she discovered it by wearing it because she kept feeling this like icky thing brushing her leg, and finally, when she like you know I guess went to the ladies' room or something to examine. 
woman what could be doing that. It was a dead mouse paw that was sticking out between the stitches. And she developed in order to, and adding an insult to an injury, um, she developed some really disgusting sort of rodent, dead rodent related rash uh, from this um, encounter with the mouse. So she is, as you might imagine, suing the company. But the dead rodent, um, to me, this story was not so much about sort of the ew gross out factor, but it really speaks to the factory conditions in which that dress was sewn. And um, the whole industry of fast fashion, if you think about it for more than 30 seconds, is truly a shanda, as they uh, say in Yiddish. And um, it's a shame and a crime. It's their sweatshops. I mean, there's so much slave labor or semi, you know, quasi slave labor going on around the world in order to give us cheap food, cheap clothes, cheap everything. It's really worth thinking about your clothing decisions. I myself only shop consignment now, um, unless I'm going to buy something expensive, which really is not in my budget at this particular moment, broke as I am. Um, but you should be listening to the show that follows me, which is called Magnifico. I'm going to make that obvious. Magnifico Radio with Kate Black. She does dissect sort of the whole fast fashion, cosmetics, um, et cetera, and, and tries to bring in more sustainable and healthy manufacturers from those industries uh, who are sort of pointing the way forward, just as there are meat companies that are doing a better job of raising animals and giving uh, better uh, wages to their workers. So um, so think about your fast fashion choices. Um, H&M, Forever 21, Zara, you know, it's gross, man. It's really gross. There's a reason why that t-shirt only costs $2.99 and it's not a good one. And, um, you know, getting a mouse in your clothes is, is a real wake-up call to that. And then last but surely not least on my, oh, well, no, I'm not done yet. Uh, two more minutes. Um, who saw the article in the Times about the new GMO technology that would alter the way plants photosynthesize and thus improve production exponentially? Yeah, really interesting. They're creating, they're grafting new genes into plants. And they use tobacco as an example because it's a very easy plant to replicate genes or, and it grows fast and generations change quickly. So it's, it's, it's not something that they particularly want to grow as they were you know, very uh, at pains to say during the in the in the New York Times article, but but it is um, it is a plant whose uh, genes can be altered, I guess, <clears throat> somewhat readily. And so they inserted a gene that increases the rate at which it photosynthesizes, which then increases the rate at which it grows, and include and even uh, increases the yield of the plant. So I, of course, cannot possibly pronounce on the pros and presumed cons of this technology. Um, I know that traditional GMO tech uh, is basically a failed technology thanks to the increased use of herbicides and pesticides that are required in order to keep up with the rapidly evolving plants uh, that are growing around genetically modified organisms. But um, I do wonder what the long-term impacts of tinkering with photosynthesis might be. For example, would this change the exchange of CO2 and oxygen that the plant makes? As we all know, the plant breathes in the CO2 and it breathes out oxygen for our atmosphere. If And this is done through the process of photosynthesis. So if you change the way the plant photosynthesizes, will you also be changing the ratio of carbon dioxide to oxygen? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. But if anybody else does know and wants to write to me on my show page, I'd love to hear your opinions about it. Um, this was in the New York Times just this past week on the 18th of November, in case you want to check it out. Um, and last but not least, because we're coming up on Turkey Day or Thanksgiving, I just wanted to give you a few fun facts about 
turkeys. Um, you know my obsessive interest in the meat industry, right? So 46 million turkeys are consumed on Thanksgiving Day alone. 46 million. The total of turkey consumption in the United States is somewhere around 216 million. I think it's 19 million on Christmas and another 13 million for Easter. But anyway, does that add up to 216 million? Not quite. But then, you know, people eat turkey breast, sliced turkey breast, uh, you know, deli meats. <laughs> Not a fan, as you might guess. But I do love the smell of a great roasting turkey, I have to admit. And I think turkey gravy is a gift from God. So, um, And I happen to make it extremely well. So I was taught by my father when I was a very little girl because it was my favorite part of the meal was gravy. Anyway, 46 million turkeys are consumed on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was named a national holiday by Abraham Lincoln in, uh, I think it was 1863. And the reason that turkeys became so popular is because there were so many of them uh, when the you know first colonies uh, were established in the United States. Um, that was a very common bird. And if you've ever spent any time in New England, you know that to be true. I see flocks of turkeys all over my uh, area in uh, southern Rhode Island, and I've eaten, eaten, I have even eaten some of them. Um, they don't fly that well, so they're pretty easy to shoot, uh, although they can run 20 miles an hour, I learned. And among, uh, turkey is among the top 10 foods for eye health. Those of you who are <clears throat> approaching the, the your older years, uh, they are rich in zinc and niacin, which is supposed to be helpful in preventing cataracts. And the National Turkey Federation, which from which I gleaned all these facts, by the way, they have a web page. Um, they are responsible for what I consider a totally bizarre ritual of the president pardoning the turkey. I don't know why you would pardon the turkey. I find that a hugely ironic sort of public ritual, um, especially given the number of birds that meet their maker in this orgy of turkey meat consumption. Why on earth would you pretend clemency? I don't know. I find it kind of weird. But anyway, there it is. Um, and those are your joys and sorrows for today. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Jonathan Gelbard, uh, formerly of the NRDC, but now the lead scientist at Grasslands Alliance and at Conservation Values. So stay tuned for this sponsor and we'll be right back. And this one's called Greenwood Cemetery by Teeth People. We'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do. But the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. 
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm going to try to slow down now. I realized I just delivered my joys and sorrows at sort of a breakneck speed. So in the interest of actually uh, you being able to hear what I'm saying, I will um, slow myself down a little bit and introduce my guest, Dr. Jonathan Gelbard, who is the lead scientist at Grasslands Alliance and a conservation scientist in sustainable agriculture specialist at Conservation Value, which serves clients interested in developing and implementing programs that benefit our environment, climate, and economy alike. Not unlike my sponsor today, as a matter of fact. In partnership with other conservation entities, Dr. Gelbard's work for Grasslands Alliance and Conservation Value focuses on devising innovative programs for distinguishing the livestock producers who demonstrate verifiably good ranch and farm management and rewards them with economically valuable benefits. He holds a PhD in ecology from UC Davis and a master's degree in environmental management from Duke University. Woohoo, man. Welcome to the program, Jonathan. Thanks, Thanks for coming. For me. Thanks for coming back actually because you were on the show a couple of years ago to talk about the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. When you, right. when you were still with uh, the NRDC. So can you tell us, uh, did you hear the sponsor drop, by the way, the New York State Certified and Grown uh, Program? It sounds a lot like what you guys are doing at Conservation Value. Um, yeah, no, uh, uh, I, I heard a little bit of that. I didn't catch too much of it. It's kind but, of I a... Mean, the, Go ahead. So it's, it's an accreditation program, sort of similar to what I'm thinking you are going to tell me about now in this um, segment. So why don't we actually start, since you didn't hear the whole thing, why don't we start with what the Grasslands Alliance is and what it offers to farmers? Sure, absolutely. Well, the Grasslands Alliance is, is, is a group of uh, certifiers as well as NGOs uh, founded by Rainforest Alliance, the Food Alliance. Uh, and NRDC to to really address this this uh, market interest in uh, recognizing and incentivizing and enabling uh, the production of credibly more uh, quote sustainable some people a lot of people like to call it now regenerative mm-hmm. uh, sources of beef and to really recognize. And, and work with uh, producers and, and, and recognize and distinguish those who are conserving grasslands and biodiversity, who are really sustaining productive and resilient grazing lands. Um, we, we, like, we want to enable North American ranchers and farmers to not just mitigate, but also to adapt to or prepare for um, all the uncertainties and risks and vulnerabilities associated with climate change um, that many are already experiencing. Um, and also to protect public health, for example, with responsible use of antibiotics. Now it seems like with antibiotics, you know, if you get a bad infection, the doctor will often say, well, if this doesn't work, you'll have to try that. There's, you know, that kind of uncertainty around antibiotics is just, it's scary, you know, and it's wrong. And and so we incentivize responsible uses of antibiotics. And we really aim to achieve these goals by synthesizing all that great traditional ranching wisdom that's out there Mm -hmm. with all that great modern science. That's out there, you know, sparking management innovation, encouraging not just recognizing the best producers, but also encouraging continuous improvement mm-hmm. from those who are really just starting to get involved with sustainability and realize its benefits, or or be or, or have their suppliers ask them to, to if they can produce more credibly sustainable beef. Um, so we're we're we're, re- we're really working hard to align 
the values of beef producers who are who are kind of interested in accessing this marketplace as well as producing more regenerative sources of beef with buyers who were interested in where do I find credibly, quote, sustainable beef, um, and with consumers who are interested uh, in making a difference and essentially voting with their purchases uh, for the type of world that they want to live in. Will, will this... Um uh, this will this actually be um, sort of uh, at a price point that the average person can afford, or will it be expensive the way um, you know grass-fed beef is traditionally more costly than conventionally produced beef? I mean, do you see it scaling up to the point where you where these people can actually compete with conventional production, or will it remain sort of somewhat of a niche product? Do you think? What? I think what you've seen with other certified sustainable products from coffee to bananas, you know, and even to beef and grass-fed beef, there's a lot of different factors Mm -hmm. that affect the shelf prices. Um, And as farmers meet, the good news is as farmers meet sustainability standards, the quality of their crop uh, invariably improves. Uh, And this quality almost always does command a premium price, but the Grasslands Alliance, this is certified beef, will be available and affordable to burger eaters as well as those who are uh, ordering filet mignon. And what we've seen with organic and various other uh, sources of of, uh, foods, I think, will apply, that different uh, retailers and and food service folks will find a way to make it happen and work Mm -hmm. with their supply chains. Um, to do so. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And this label is only going to apply to beef, but do you eventually see it um, being something that could be applied, say, if people started bringing pork and poultry back outside um, in a more uh, integrated farm, you know, protocol? Would that would these same principles apply more or less to to pork and poultry, or are you just going to stay focused on the beef issue because beef has the worst reputation in terms of of um, greenhouse gas emissions? Right. Well, well, um, different animals have. There's different. Really, what these focus on, if you remember, is is addressing the impacts that people really care about. You know, what mm-hmm. gets people to purchase. You know, what gets people interested in it. You know, mm-hmm. they often have some issue, whether it's antibiotics or they're passionate about soil health or wildlife or fish or water or climate. You know, or, or it could be safe and fair working conditions, animal welfare. Um, the issue, the, you know, the issues are going to be a little bit different for all the different types of animals. The, sure. the two that are closest are bison, which we will cover, which is because that's very obviously very similar yeah. um, to cattle, and and the second one that people have asked me about at least is sheep, mm-hmm. and and that's where you have, for example, on the federal public lands, there's the sheep grazing and and there's. Uh, cattle grazing. So a lot of it's, you know, we're pretty close. We'd have to make some some tweaks for for uh, the best practices and and, and outcomes uh, associated with sheep production. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if there is interest in some of those other animals, what's great about really reintegration is that they all serve different niches. So if there's demand for that and people want us to do that, it's something that we'd be happy to take a look at. That's cool. Very good. Um, you know, you. The, I, I read the whole document. I mean, I'm, you probably didn't expect me to do that. 
but I am wow. a bit of a geek in that. Yeah, it was 49 <laughs> pages. Yeah, no, it took a few hours. Yeah. No question about uh-huh. it. Um, but, you know, I like to dig deep into these things. As long as I'm going to, you know, have somebody, an expert like yourself on, I'm, I'm going to prepare myself to ask you some questions. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to, but before we get into like these specific um, issues in this, in this uh, certification program that you are, you know, responsible for or res- part of, um, you, when we talked uh, a couple of years ago about the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, and I'll just remind listeners, that was kind of the industry answer to improve sustainability within the conventional cattle industry. Um, mm-hmm. Did you, um, and you and I were quite skeptical of um, many of the points that they made in their sort of um, program, their menu of sustainable issues. Um, what, but what are the biggest issues, what are the biggest differences between what you are offering with the Grasslands Alliance uh, and the um, and some of the proposals expressed by the, uh, the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef? Well, well the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef really just puts out a framework. You know, right. they're also a big convener. They're bringing together the big players in, in industry. They're doing really important work, and, 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 and they uh, offer a framework of principles and criteria. And what we have essentially done is put details right. into the GRSB principles as applies to North American ranching, specifically in U.S., um, as well as Canada. And uh, we're really aiming for the same goals. Uh-huh. And we took care to make sure that uh, our standard is harmonized with the principles and criteria mm-hmm. of, the, of the GRSB. Now, there are, some, there are some areas that we didn't cover just because they apply to uh, uh, areas further downstream, for example, processing and, uh, and food preparation that we didn't cover, but we feel really good about that, that, that if people are looking for a comprehensive standard, meaning a standard that addresses all the issues of concern in one label, mm-hmm. so you don't need to look for four or five labels to, and stickers to cover your, your favorite issues, um, that, that it's covered. And uh, we think that, that all the different, the work that the roundtables are doing is, is valuable Mm-hmm. And and important, and we look forward to working with those folks who might be interested in seeing how the Grasslands Alliance um, could help support some of their goals. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, do you see um, some of the people who are, and we should say right away that the the players involved in the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef include some of the major um, meat companies, JBS in mm-hmm. Brazil, which has mm-hmm. obviously people in uh, North America, as well as around the world. They're in 26 countries. Um, we have Cargill. We have McDonald's. Um, mm-hmm. There are other really major, major buyers and producers uh, that are involved. Do you see the standards that you are... Um, um, proposing uh, as something that might uh, translate into, uh, say, what a Cargill is demanding from the people who contract with them. Absolutely, and mm-hmm. and and really, what we've what we've done, and 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 where you see some of the differences with with the more industry oriented standards is, is we we've created something that's science based. Right. Um, there's a deep and long scientific process. We brought together leading scientific experts. We piloted the standard on working ranches. We've, we've talked to buyers about what they're interested in. And, you know, we've heard buyers say to us, we need simplification. We need a way to uh, 
to just make this whole process of purchasing and, and just recognizing credibly sources of, quote, sustainable beef easier. Mm-hmm. You know, how many labels do I have to look for? And in, in the buyer's case, they're worried about um, reputational risks and, and they're all, you know, and, and vulnerabilities associated with their beef mm-hmm. supply chain. But they also um, want to want to want to uh, make a difference. And, and there are people within those organizations that really care about the products that they're offering and the production practices and their supply chains. And they, and they really want to make a difference to potential. So we would be happy to work with any of them who are interested in seeing what we can learn from each other. Well, what I, I think is really interesting is, you know, I've been doing this show for such a long time. Um, and what I see happening is I see a lot of industry leadership uh, coming to the fore in the absence of federal uh, regulations and mandates. Um, so when it comes to addressing issues around climate change, and we're going to talk about water in a minute, but but just overall sort of you know, bare bones climate change issues that you need to be ready for as a corporation, as a responsible corporation that, you know, wants to continue to give your shareholders their dividends or whatever, you know, like these guys are really coming to the table with some great ideas. And so, you know, much as it's um, fun to uh, bash the industry, I have to say that there's quite a few of them that are showing some major leadership on this. And I really hope that your program uh, becomes uh, something more than um, just something that one small section of say the Cargill family, one brand is going to, you know what I mean? Like I'd like to see it, you know, translate into McDonald's being completely sourced by, you know, Grassland Alliance uh, certified um, beef. But I was, um, I wanted to ask you a couple of, there were a couple of things that um, really struck me whilst I was reading the document. Um, There's a section about conserving natural wildlife and habitat Mm -hmm. and the Alliance makes the following promise, uh, quote, activities and policies of the operation comply with local, state, regional, federal regulations and management plans. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the pushback that uh, has come from large industrial uh, farms and farmers and especially legislators uh, who are involved in, say, Iowa, um, where like waters of the United States got so much pushback. And this was such a basic program. You know, they needlessly complicated it by saying, oh, you're going to regulate every ditch, every stream, you know, which, of course, is not the plan. Um, But agricultural runoff is obviously a tremendous problem. So, I mean, mm-hmm. how are you going to sell farmers on some of the um, issues that you highlight and offer recommendations for in your document? Because I, I feel like they're, they are sort of in some ways the hardest sell because they're so <coughs> nervous about making changes. Right, right, right. Well, um, and I'm going I'm I'm to actually step even back to, to your initial comments about about climate change. I'm going to do my best to, to pull all of this together. Thank now, you. what's interesting about what, about climate change is that this this sector in particular is extremely vulnerable right. to you know reductions in precipitation, uh, especially when accompanied by increases uh, in temperature. Um, there's a real vulnerability there to uh, reduced grass productivity, which equates to reduced livestock productivity, uh, increasing frequency and severity of droughts that you never know what year they're going to hit, how long they're going to last. The good news is, is that better management that that protects against those risks, that improves soil health and the amount of rainfall that infiltrates into the soil and the ability of the soil to store 
water um, improves grass productivity. And a lot of people talk about soil carbon as something important for uh, mitigating climate change. But for every 1% increase in soil carbon, you see uh, the amount of water that the soil can hold increases by 60,000 gallons per acre. So these practices that are important for not only for reducing emissions are also really important for improving the resilience of the ranches to climate change. And guess what? Those those ranches that can have better uh, soil health um, not only produce more grasses in a way that's better for livestock productivity and reduces their vulnerability to drought, right. but also benefits wildlife. And you see reduced runoff going into and, and polluting streams and rivers. So there are so the benefits of these practices, everything is tied together. And the more that we have looked at this, the more we see that there's this, this is a sector uh, chock full of win-win opportunities that benefit uh, ranching productivity and the health of ecosystems alike. And in Grasslands Alliance's case, when it comes to climate, we were really surprised. And this is, this is one of the reasons that we developed this standard, is, is that there's a gap. There's not yet a standard in the marketplace mm-hmm. that explicitly incorporates climate change that incentivizes all the important work that those so-called carbon cowboys are out there, the regenerative (laughs) ranchers who are leading the way um, and doing such important work. You know, these folks, uh, there's not a standard that actually recognizes that specific body of work that they're doing, and and we're really looking forward to working with them uh, and getting them uh, incentivized and connected to the buyers who are interested in purchasing incredibly more sustainable beef. Right, right. That's, that's, I, I, I'm loving what you're saying. Let me ask you this. I mean, what you're talking about is what I've been hearing about vis-a-vis the Savory Institute. Like I had Nicolette mm-hmm. uh, Nyman on a few years ago when she published Defending Beef. And I followed mm-hmm. the Savory Institute quite closely and they've really, um, they really have taken hold with young farmers. I'm, I'm noticing mm-hmm. everybody is ta- suddenly everyone is talking about soil health and how mm-hmm. important that is. And that's obviously where you're, you know, what you guys are talking about at Grasslands Alliance. Um, do you mm-hmm. work with the Savory Institute, or are you guys just like a separate entity? Like, just I mean, you don't have to spend a lot of time answering that. I'm just curious about the connection and whether there is one, and whether this what you're talking about is also becoming uh, the gospel in um, in university mm-hmm. extension programs and land grant universities. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and, and we've worked with some of those ranchers. And we'll work with anybody, whether they practice holistic management. Or, or not, you know that's mm-hmm. that's an that's an area. What's what's been fascinating to watch is that that's an area that's attracted a whole lot of scientific controversy. The more I've learned about it, um, the more I think there's a lot of misunderstanding mm-hmm. that's going on, and 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 it's it's kind of a nuanced thing um, because on one hand, you the science hasn't been able to pin down, for example specific benefits of rotational grazing and and, and the on the other hand you have a lot of anecdotes coming out of ranchers and farmers who use this stuff right and 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 swear by it and so while I, I I definitely agree that the that the science has has a ways to go to try to figure out what well, what's going on here and I think that um, that both sides of that debate have have merit and you know on one hand we don't have the evidence that we need to support a lot of those claims but on the other hand um, 
the nuances of, nat of natural grasslands really require that you study these impacts and see, you know, well, what's going on here? Are the, do you have different effects on different soil types, depending on topography, depending on climate? And I think that once you start to get into those, uh, those nuances and we start to kind of sort through what the confounding factors from a scientific standpoint are that are kind of confusing the results, then we'll start to get a little bit more uh, clarity on those issues. And one of the things that, that, that we've encouraged, and, and that's actually something that we've encouraged those folks to do, is you know, work with scientists, yeah. you know, get this stuff quantified, you know, be careful of, you know, of, of what you say, try, you know, try not to fuel the controversy itself. Let's focus together on solutions, because the good news is what we've seen that offer is a management framework that actually gets people to change. And, and what's fascinating about it is, is you know, every, it's, it's a sector that's notoriously so resistant to change, but at yeah. the same time the margins are so thin that you're getting people looking for something else. And, and, and the Savory Institute and, and that whole holistic management approach, I think the greatest value is the, the decision-making framework that it offers that really gets personal and deep with everybody. What's your holistic goal? What do you want your ranch or farm to look like? Mm -hmm. And 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 that's that's really deep stuff. Yeah. And and then you think about well, what can I do to achieve those goals and that vision? And people and, and it teaches a, a, a level of basic ecology or your water cycle, your mineral cycle, your solar cycle, are those things intact and gets people to start looking at themselves as managers of a healthy ecosystem as required to support a healthy ranch instead of just as livestock producers. And I think that sort of change in how you see yourself, you know, it um, really helps uh, change the way that people manage their land. And, and so that's something I, I really want to give credit to um, and, I, and I look forward to continuing to track the progress that those folks make um, in uh, helping train and enable ranchers who are looking for new approaches that uh, are more regenerative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in the wake as we were talking about climate change, like the drought, the lack of precipitation, if you are a cattle farmer, I mean, herds, thousands and thousands of cattle have been slaughtered, you know, in Texas. That's why we had a glut on the beef market, because they didn't have enough water to, to keep the cows alive. So, I mean, obviously, it's it's a major economic issue to learn how to manage um, your pasture. So to that point, can you briefly describe what a grazing and management plan actually is and how it is alternative to what current practices dictate? Well, uh, um, a, a grazing management plan really, you know, at, at the very base of it, um, you look at, you know, really focuses on first making sure you have the right amount of animals for the, for the current conditions that you have out there, you know, the amount of, um, for the amount of forage and for the amount of food that the animals consume. And you're really going to have to update it's, it's, it's in, in ranching terms the stocking rate, uh -huh. um, depending on how much grass is out there each year, um, depending on, you know, the age of your animals. It's going to be different if you have a cow and a calf versus uh, some, some uh, younger animals that, are, that, that people call stockers. And... Um, 
depending on what your goals are for, for your ranch, um, you might do rotational grazing. If that's possible where you are, you might do something that people call moderate grazing. There's some ranchers out there who say, hey, you know, in my landscape, I'm out in the west, the terrain's really rugged. Uh, we just can't do that level of management-intensive grazing. Um, it's too difficult. What we choose to do is moderate grazing, so they adjust the stocking rate. But the bottom line is, is having a plan to achieve sort of the long-term vision for a ranch uh -huh. and, and all of the different goals that they have along with it. And that includes setting your, not just your stocking rate, but also the, uh, your grazing and rest periods. You know, it's what, what people are finding more and more is that the, the length of the rest period in between bouts of grazing, making sure that the plants have their recovery time uh, right. before they're grazed again, is absolutely critical. So there's a growing body of scientific knowledge behind that, and we're doing our best through this program to tr serve as a bridge between the body of science advising what's going to help maintain a healthy forage base, as well as a healthy ecosystem in general, um, and the ranchers who are managing these lands on the ground. Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, there was one thing that really, um, you know, it's, it's encouraging that you're finding ranchers are more and more aware of this and that they're, they're looking for ways to maximize uh, their impact or rather diminish the impact of grazing on their land and so on. But there was one thing that really struck me in this um, certification program, um, which is that in the five-year, this is Article 2.7, by the way, mm -hmm. in the five-year period prior application for our Grassland Alliance certification, there has been no destruction of high-value conservation targets or natural habitat. So in other words, this is saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but before a rancher or a farmer can even apply for certification, he has to have been working within certain parameters that have been set up by the Alliance. Isn't that quite a barrier for entry to somebody who's trying to make the switch um, to, you know, more mindful uh, grazing practices or management practices? Like, how how does that work within, I mean, you know, like a lot of guys have been doing this over a long time. They want to, you know, maybe just check it out with a few hundred acres or something like that. I mean, I, I felt like that was a real barrier to entry. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so, so where, where that comes from is, is you know, we work with the, our, our, our sister standard is that of the Sustainable Agriculture Network standard that's used by the Rainforest Alliance yeah. uh, in the tropics and around the world. And this mimics the requirement of the Sustainable Agriculture Network and other standards used for palm oil, for example, that are working with scores of producers and scientists and NGOs to find the right balance. Um, as well as the best entry point for preventing deforestation and habitat destruction and land conversion mm. um, and protecting high conservation and other natural habitats so that we're rewarding the ranchers and farmers who've been good stewards while also finding ways to work with those who want to become good stewards. And what we don't want to have in place without that five-year requirement is an incentive to get all your land conversion and deforestation done before you apply for certification because then once you once you do it you, you know that's that's a barrier you know so there, so so this is just one of those things that's that's really what we're looking at we don't want that incentive in place either 
And right. you know, like everything, this standard's a work in progress too. Nothing's set in stone. We're going to uh, work to we're going to work to improve our programs and the standard itself as we go. Right. It's, you know, we we hold ourselves accountable to that same continuous improvement standard that we hold our partners accountable to, and. Um, well, if there is a need to improve this, to tweak it, to incorporate some language that uh, provides some flexibility while also maintaining integrity, uh, we'll find ways to do that. Yeah, I figured. I just wanted to clarify that because I thought that was like, that's kind of hardcore, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know what well, I, mean? I, mean, I mean? Five years. I mean, and, geez. And, and, to give, and to give you an example of of. of of where that might come out to be important, mm-hmm. um, we had an environmental NGO come to us uh, in, interested in this land conversion issue, uh, alarmed about an operation in Florida that is uh, converting tens of thousands of acres of pine forest to, that's literally raising tens of thousands of acres of pine forest to grow organic grass-fed beef. Oh, geez. And, and, the re- and the reason they can do that is because land conversion uh, isn't prevented in the grass-fed or the organic standards, as far as I can understand. As far as I understand it, uh-huh. and so they asked us. They said, "Well, would your standard prevent that? You know, that they can say, oh, well, we have to get our, our our land clearing done first because once we apply for certification, we can't do any more of it.' Um, and and yeah. that's that's where we have real life concerns of conservation is coming to us interested in an issue like that. And, and, and this addresses it. Yes, it does. Very interesting. Cause of course I hadn't thought about that because uh, I don't know that much, but you do. Thank goodness. Um, I wanted to, we don't have that much time left. So I wanted to quickly talk about water again, water quality issues. Um, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know if you, well, you don't know this because we haven't been in constant contact, but I just finished writing a book about the cattle, about uh, the meat industry as a whole in um, sort of around the world. And um, one of the things that really just blew me away was the whole issue around manure disposal or rather, you know, effluent. And um, it's just, I mean, it is the fundamental problem of industrialized meat production is they just mm-hmm. cannot, they have nowhere to go with the stuff. And why, And the the fact is, is that farmers are not, most of them are contracted on some level to uh, to a Cargill, a JBS, a Tyson, a Smithfield, um, and they, those. One of the things that really struck me in doing the research is that those entities, those corporate entities, do not bear any responsibility for the disposal of waste from their animals. This is all on the backs of the farmers and ranchers, or contractors, whatever the depending on which thing it is. And in your um, in your proposal, you have a whole section about how um, uh, you know how they have the the farmers in question that their manure storage facilities have to be designed and managed to capture or limit emissions of methane VOCs etc that they have to have Mm -hmm. um, liquid slurry um, whatever is not applied to fields has to be piped off to municipal wastewater and I think you know in a way I felt like that whole section was putting the cart before the horse because what really needs to change is that those companies if you're not an independent producer and you're producing in contract with a Cargill or a JBS, that those companies need to be involved in dealing with this waste management issue because there is no financial margin uh, large enough to allow a guy who has, you know, 
10,000 cattle or, you know, five, it's not even, it's way too big a herd, but, you know, who has a way to put this, place to put this stuff. And also, I don't know of any municipal wastewater treatment plants that accept animal waste. And so those are two sort of legislative issues or regulation issues that I think need to be addressed before I think farmers can be made responsible for effluent. Can you? Right. Yeah. And, 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 one of the things that you've seen in other sectors that deal with with certification, and 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 this is in this is an issue that I think would be a good candidate for that, um, is you will see groups of retailers come together, um, and pool resources to support technical and financial assistance for producers in their supply chains. So. There was a group, I think it's called Carbon Canopy, uh, a group of, of retailers that wanted to uh, implement, I think Staples was involved, for example, that wanted to mm-hmm. implement uh, the Forest Stewardship Council's forest certification program for uh, for forest products, paper, wood, mm-hmm. um, into their supply chains. And, and they did that. They pooled resources, uh, Carbon Canopy, to, to make sure that producers in their supply chains have the resources needed to uh, to implement uh, the best practices that address these types of pollution and, and, and other public health and, 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 and slates of issues and I, and I think that's a that's a great model for addressing some of those concerns with feedlots now the grasslands alliance standard where we have those nutrient management provisions they're really more geared toward ranches with smaller what are called backgrounding operations right. rather than big feedlots. And so some ranches, for example, because the feedlots offer a price premium for animals that are already conditioned to grain, they'll have a backgrounding operation um, on their ranch. And there's smaller types of facilities rather than those giant dry lots that you see out in out in western half of Kansas, for example, or in eastern Colorado. And that's what these are really geared towards. Um, but even still, you're right. You know, there's, there's, there are upfront costs associated with these improvements. Huge. The good news is, is that the benefits to public health, to water quality, to people who fish in those streams, to people who swim, um, and to people also who, who rely on uh, drinking water. Uh, that comes from the ground. Um, in the Central Valley of California, you've seen a lot of water of aquifers um, that have been polluted by over-application of, of manure. Yeah. Um, and you've seen a lot of issues associated with this. We want to see those issues taken care of. Um, and what what the standard does is is it codifies what science has shown as, as best practice and technologies and incentivizes those who implement that. As we move forward and uh, find producers or, 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 or retailers who are interested in working with that part of the standard, who have producers who have those facilities on their ranches, um, that's something that we will uh, work on with them to make sure that we have it right and find a model that works to to achieve the outcomes of the standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just like, I mean, my own um, research into this, like the, the, I visited a Cargill plant, you know, four or five years ago and they process five. Okay. This is not part of your thing. They process 5,000 cattle a day or whatever. 
-hmm. They had these incredible anaerobic digesters. I mean, they were very forward thinking. As I say, this is five years Mm -hmm. ago. So I mean, it was a really impressive um, and they were capturing the methane and using it to fuel their grid and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was a very forward thinking Mm -hmm. program that they were using. And I was suitably impressed. But what I was also suitably impressed by was the price tag for it. And um, only a really large corporation could afford to put in anything even remotely resembling something like this technology. And that's that's where I felt like, um, you know, why I said that I felt like this was sort of the cart before the horse, because I think that um, either municipalities or state uh, legislature or someone else besides a farmer or rancher has to has to like dig in and give money. And the idea that retailers will get together and maybe fund this on, um, you know, on certain ranches or, or a number of ranches. I don't know. I mean, I, it's a little pie in the sky for me, Jonathan, but I'm hoping that you're right. Unfortunately, we have to close right. this now, but I want to say um, that you have now uh, about 60 seconds to promote your program shamelessly <laughs> and because i think it's a great idea and i you know i don't mean to I, I hope you don't mind my playing devil's advocate but i feel like these are issues like a lot of my listeners are in the agricultural community and these are things that are they're going to be thinking about when they listen to you talk and so right. you know it's like I, really that stuff is is like a real barrier to entry in the sense of like well how am i ever going to get certified in grasslands alliance if i can't put in an anaerobic digester in my you know background operation like i don't know well i guess i won't do it you know what I mean? you don't want that right. you want people to really right. like say yes this is going to make money for me yes this is going to connect me to retailers who will buy my product at a premium price blah 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 so um now right. you get to you get to promote shamelessly and tell us where people can learn more about your program about your certification program and um and more about the science like is it all there right. on your well, website Right. Well, well, I'll wrap it up, and I'll first address those barriers that, that you mentioned, and that's something we've done a lot of due diligence with talking to all the stakeholders about those barriers, mm-hmm. and we are committed to serving as a facilitator to make sure that the ranchers and farmers have access to the technical assistance and will serve as a conduit to sources of financial assistance, financing. Cool. There's lots of different sources out there that, that are, it's just it's overwhelming, it's time-consuming, they don't have the time for it. Um, we'll do our best to help facilitate access to that, to serve as a bridge um, to those types of uh, forms of assistance. And there's a real shortage right now of technical assistance, of feet on the ground, help of uh, uh, helping farmers and ranchers implement. We recognize those barriers, and we're committed to continuing to learn. Uh, and as barriers come up, uh, working with our partners to address those barriers. And we're really looking forward to providing a solution, a credible solution that uh, consumers can trust in, in one label that will help buyers in one label rather than having to go to multiple uh, labels, address all the issues and, and risks and vulnerabilities in their supply chains, as well as ranchers. You know, ranchers, the, those issues of so many different labels, that affects ranchers. They'll sure. tell each one is an application, is a fee, is time that they have to spend out in, out, out in the land with an inspector. You know, and, and yeah. one actually threw his hands up in the air. It's like, end this nightmare for us. One, <laughs> one inspection, one application, one audit. You know, we're, we're really deeply committed to, to listening to all of the different stakeholders and, and, and understanding what they're looking for, what they need, and what kind of help and support that they need, and working to really serve as a credible bridge that generates uh, outcomes for the health of America's 
hundreds of millions of lands that are grazed and that we can improve their condition, soil health, uh, wildlife, water quality, um, as well as productivity for ranching of those lands, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, improve resilience to climate change, and generate business benefits as well for, for different stakeholders. So um, we look forward and, and welcome opportunities. We have a website. It's grasslandsalliance.org, G-R-A-S-S-L-A-N-D-S alliance.org. And our standard is posted for public comment right now. Yes. Please check it out. Send us your comments. We want to hear from all of you out there, all different stakeholders, um, conservationists, scientists, buyers, ranchers, farmers. We want to hear from all of you on how we can help. So with that, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. It was really, it was a pleasure and we will continue. I want to keep in touch with you and hear how things are going and, uh, you know, potentially talk to some of the people who are implementing your standards in the future. So um, my great thanks to you for being a guest and thanks to the um, New York State uh, Grown and Certified Program, which sponsors mine. And remember, people, we are in our fundraising drive. Please hit the donate button. Please send us money. Please sponsor this program and all the other great programs on this air. Um, And um, last but not least, have a wonderful holiday. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.